Welcome to the Director's Chair. My name is Michael Fullylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I speak with political leaders and policymakers about their lives, their careers and their views on the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the 25th Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard. Mr. Howard was born in Earlwood in Sydney and he studied law at the University of Sydney. He worked as a solicitor before entering federal parliament in 1974. He served as Minister for Business and Consumer Affairs and then as Treasurer in the Fraser Government. Between 1985 and 1989, John served as leader of the Liberal Party and leader of the opposition. He returned to the Liberal Party leadership in 1995 and he led the coalition to victory at the 1996 election, becoming Australia's 25th PM. The Howard government was re-elected three more times and he served as Prime Minister until 2007. Thank you very much, John Howard, for joining me on the Director's Chair. Pleasure. John, let's go right back to the beginning. Tell us about your upbringing in Earlwood. You were brought up by your parents, Lyle and Mona. Both your dad and your grandfather were veterans of the First World War, and unusually, they both served on the Western Front. Tell me a bit about your family and your upbringing. I grew up in a family of four boys. I was the youngest, very devoted parents. My father owned a small business, a petrol service station. From the very beginning, uh, I understood how hard it was to run a small business. And I must say, as I look at the devastation that many small businesses are suffering at the present time because of the necessary lockdowns under the pandemic, I'm not condemning the lockdowns, but they are suffering as a group probably more than any other identifiable group in the community. I often think how hard it is sometimes through no fault of anybody, but just of circumstance. So I've always had a real soft spot for small business and it did influence many of the decisions I took when I became Prime Minister. I'll come back to COVID because I want to ask you about that, but tell me about memories of the First World War when you were growing up with that unusual family background. How important was that in your life? Well, of course, I I was born in 1939. I I didn't have any memories of the First World War. I had memories of talking to my father about it occasionally. He died when I was only 16 because he'd been gassed in Belgium on the Western Front and uh, left him, uh, uh, his health affected for the rest of his life. And like most people of that generation, he was a heavy smoker. But people didn't appreciate then the health consequences. And, and if I'd have been on the Western Front, I'd have been a heavy smoker. Too. I mean, heavens above, uh, when you think of the terrible conditions under which they they fought and tried to exist and survive. But I grew to appreciate very much uh, uh, the horror of that uh, conflict and the fact that both my father and grandfather had been in it and gave it a special resonance. And, of course, through the 1930s, my father's uh, great interest in world affairs uh, led him to develop very strong views that were critical of the appeasement policies of the Allies at that time. He was one of those who was attracted to what Winston Churchill was saying during the 1930s, not in 1940 when he became Prime Minister. And of course, Winston Churchill was your namesake. And to fast forward in the mid-1960s, when Churchill passed away, you found yourself in London, I think, volunteering for the, for the Tory party, if I'm correct. Yeah, I was, I was on a working holiday, mm-hmm. uh, which was the want of so many Australians of all generations still 
And I was in Britain and Europe for a year and uh, I happened to be working in London with a firm of solicitors uh, and I, I watched uh, the funeral procession for Winston Churchill. I stood in a crowd on Ludgate Hill and watched it. It was just an interesting experience to be there at the time and the extraordinary esteem, acclaim, affection people had for Churchill and uh, I, I just remember it very, very vividly. At Churchill's funeral, the eulogy, of course, was given by Sir Robert Menzies from St Paul's Cathedral. It was a very good speech. It was an absolutely brilliant. I remember after it was over, the session, I went back to the home of an English family that I knew and we listened to the speeches by Dwight Eisenhower, who represented uh, President Johnson, and um, Bob Menzies. And no, no disrespect to Eisenhower, but Menzies' speech was just laid him in the aisle. It was brilliant. He had a tremendous capacity. He was the greatest political orator I've ever heard as an orator, magnificent. And he had great personal commitment uh, to everything Winston Churchill represented uh, and, and, of course, the relations between Australia and Great Britain. Over the next decade, of course, you were getting more and more active in Australian politics. You entered Parliament in 1974. The Cold War, I guess, was the soundtrack to a lot of Australian public life in this period. Oh, I, I think that's a very good way of putting it. It was the soundtrack, the Cold War. It really defined so much of the political debate, not only in the United States, but also around the world and certainly in Australia. I mean, one of the things we should remember is that many of the election campaigns in the 1950s in particular and into the 1960s in Australia were conducted with a very heavy emphasis on, on foreign affairs and defence. Mm. And the extent to which Australia should be associated with the United States in the Cold War and whether there was any and to what extent an alternative model to the capitalist model, they tended to define not only a lot of the debate between the coalition and the Labor Party, but also debate within the Labor Party uh, between the different factions. And, of course, it was in the 1950s that the, the Labor Party broke apart very badly over the influence of communism. And uh, so it, the Cold War was there right up until really well into the 70s, uh, uh, although it was starting to trail away uh, by the time um, the 1972 election. But it's something that's often forgotten that so many of our political battles were fought over those sorts of issues. You entered the parliament in 1974. You served in the Fraser government in increasingly senior portfolios. What were your observations about Malcolm Fraser as a player on the world stage? Oh, well, he had very, very definite views. His commitment to getting rid of apartheid was very genuine. He had a fundamental abhorrence of any kind of racial discrimination. He was quite a warrior about our involvement in Vietnam. I remember before I came into Parliament, I would watch many of the debates mm. and he impressed me uh, as putting a very strong case uh, for our involvement. And, of course, initially he was quite critical of Gough Whitlam's uh, foray uh, reaching out to China. But later on, uh, Malcolm Fraser became a very strong uh, proponent of closer relations between Australia and China. He saw supporting China as something of a, of a wedge against the Soviet Union. He had very strong 
interests in foreign affairs, mm. and he developed quite a constituency in many parts of the African Commonwealth, Commonwealth countries from Africa. He was, of course, a very strong supporter of the American alliance, although later on mm-hmm. he became more critical of it when he was out of Parliament. He had his differences with Margaret Thatcher over some issues, although the differences have tended to be overblown by history, as differences always are. He was very close to her on a number of other issues and they were reasonably close political allies. He had a good relationship with Ronald Reagan, who was the president when uh, uh, he went out of office. In the 1980s and the early 90s, of course, your party was in opposition, but you returned to the leadership in the mid-90s. You were elected Prime Minister in 1996. By the way, this also meant that I lost my job as an advisor to Prime Minister Paul Keating, but no hard feelings, John. Sorry about that. (laughs) On the last episode of The Director's Chair, I asked Julia Gillard what it was like to learn about foreign policy on the job. Can I ask you to turn your mind back to that you know, that first year or two when you, you you suddenly conquer Australian politics, you're representing Australia abroad. It's a big step up, isn't it? Suddenly you're, you're dealing with uh, all these personalities you've seen at a distance. To what extent did you find the domestic skills of politics played over into foreign policy? Did you find it took a while to get your bearings? I suppose it did. Um, but I, I had some views about foreign policy that I, I brought with me. My view was that, uh, that in dealing with the rest of the world, it, it had to be Asia first, but not Asia only. My point of departure with my predecessor and the predecessor government probably was not that he focused on Asia, and it's self-evident we had to because that's where we are. But uh, I, I felt there was a tendency to do that to the exclusion of uh, some of the associations. But I, I mean, for example, the first, I visited Jakarta, Tokyo and Beijing as Prime Minister before I visited Washington or London. Mm-hmm. didn't indicate that I wasn't uh, pro-American mm-hmm. or Anglophilic. It just meant that I, I saw those countries as being the priorities. And I, and I thought our foreign relations in our region were better advanced by building the strengths of certain bilateral relationships rather than investing too much in multilateralism. And I believe in multilateralism when it works, but it often doesn't work. And I thought that you needed to focus on those three relationships I mentioned. I mean, Japan was an easier foreign policy task for an Australian Prime Minister. Mm. Indonesia's always been difficult. Mm. It's probably calmer now and has been for a longer period now than it's been for a long time. And and China, we got off to a very bad start with China. Everything seemed to go wrong. We had an argument over Taiwan Straits issue. Uh, we had an argument over the abolition of the DIF program, which was a mm-hmm. money-saving measure, had an argument about a ministerial visit to Taiwan. It all sort of went bad, and I had a meeting with Jiang Zemin, who was then the president of China, and probably one of the more interesting and surprising foreign leaders I dealt with in the margins of the APEC meeting in Manila. And uh, we laid everything out and agreed in the end that we had to focus on things on which we could agree Mm -hmm. rather than fret about things that we couldn't agree on. Mm. And he said, you should come to China next year. And I went uh, 
to China in Easter of 1997, and it was the beginning of what I found to be a very fruitful and interesting relationship. And I often reflect now just how different his attitude towards and dealings with other countries, how different it was to the attitude and dealings with foreign countries of the current president of China. It was still, of course, a communist authoritarian state. You know, he was signed up to the true Chinese communist religion, but Mm. he just had a different way of interacting with other countries. Let me go to China, John. In October 2003, you hosted President Bush from the United States and Chinese President Hu Jintao for addresses to the federal parliament on successive days. And that's often cited as a high point in the Australia-China relationship. But as you've just alluded, things have gone downhill a long way since then. Who's responsible for that deterioration in relations? I don't say it belligerently, but I say it nonetheless firmly. It is China. I've thought about this a lot. The incident that is singled out uh, as evidence of us being belligerent towards China was the called by the foreign minister to have an inquiry into the origin of the virus. Well, I actually saw the interview when she made that call and there was nothing belligerent about it. And it's a no-brainer that there should be a proper investigation. And I don't think there's any doubt that one possible source (laughs) is some kind of activity in Wuhan. Let me put it as mildly as that. So it obviously stands to reason that you've got to have an inquiry I don't think the Australian government has done anything that could be construed as being belligerent towards China. It's proper to have an inquiry into the virus. Mm. It's not unreasonable to have foreign interference uh, legislation, which was introduced by the Turnbull government. I think the other things that have been undertaken have been very justified. And we do have 1.4 million Australian citizens with Chinese heritage, and Chinese is the most widely spoken foreign language in our country. Uh, So I think all of those measures are understandable, and I think what we have to be very careful, sensitive and deliberate in dealing with China because China is hugely important to us as a market, and we can talk about getting alternative sources of supply and so forth. These things take a long time. And we're very fortunate that uh, China still wants our coal and our iron ore Mm. and our gas. Mm. And in my opinion, we should continue to sell it in in a proper commercial way. And I I, I remember the negotiation over the natural gas deal, and it was very clear to me that the Chinese wanted the Australian consortium to get that deal because they liked doing business with us. Now, this was, what, almost 20 years ago. But it did indicate that we developed a way of dealing with the Chinese that wasn't in any way over-accommodating or sequious, but recognised the fact that we had interests in common. And it was, in a sense, consistent with the understanding that I reached with Jiang Zemin in that very first meeting in Manila, when we agreed that we ought to concentrate on those areas of interaction where we could agree. And I think we should obviously continue to do that. I think it's a a relationship where consistent with maintaining our values and not giving ground when you don't give ground, uh, we we should also avoid any kind of schoolboy point scoring in the relationship. It's it's very important to us and it can't easily be 
replicated or replaced because in trade terms it's a very natural thing. Mm. We happen to have what they want. Mm. And building on that, it's not just resources, it's also education. I, I learned a long time ago that Chinese quite like sending their children to universities and increasingly to schools in Australia. That's a very, very valuable export resource. I agree with you. The main reason the relationship with China has changed is that China has changed. Mm. But dealing with a difficult power like the PRC also requires guile, doesn't it? Have we shown enough guile in how we've managed the relationship? And to come back to your meeting with Jiang Zemin in Manila, in future, what can Australia do to focus on the issues on which we agree with China? Well, of course, it, it would be a, a very good start if we could actually have a meeting. <laughs> it's quite hard <laughs> They get a meeting. And I think it's fair to say, without uh, scoring any debating points uh, and breaking my own injunction, it, it's quite hard for some Australian ministers to get a meeting. And I do know that they have tried, and I think I'll continue to do that. There, there, there is a, a different mindset, and, and both Jung Zemin and Hu Jintao particularly the former, were people with a different attitude about interacting with the rest of the world. And I think some of Xi Jinping's externally based or directed behaviour is a product of his internal behaviour. And he has certainly tightened the show up a lot in different ways. Now, some of it was perhaps uh, directed against certain levels of corruption, but a lot of it was directed towards just uh, consolidating his own position. He's just a different personality. Now, I'm not certain that in the long run all of that's going to succeed in China. I have a view that uh, we should avoid getting mesmerised by China's power. China's got a terrible problem with the ageing of the population. And in the space of 30 years, they've made three changes to their population policy. They had a one-child policy, then they had a two-child policy, which lasted what, all of about two years. Now they've got the semblance of a three-child policy. I think that's a big challenge. And if you look at the fertility rates in China compared with those in the United States, Australia, something like 1.3 versus 1.6, 1.7, that's quite a big difference. The other challenge I think China has is that as she grows richer, more and more people will be born into comfort. And my theory, which could be totally disproved, is that if you're born into comfort, you're less likely to be told how to behave by your political masters. If you transition, uh, you're more likely to feel grateful to to some extent uh, for the benefits of the transition. All right, a final question on China, if I can, John. What do you think about New Zealand's position on China? Wellington's a member of the Five Eyes, our best friend in the world in many ways, but we've also seen the Ardern government be reluctant to join with Five Eyes countries in criticising China on some sensitive topics. Do you think China is trying to peel New Zealand off? Are you worried about Wellington? No, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's, it's a question of sort of allowing for the local option. I mean, New Zealand has always been a little bit different on those sorts of things without in any way behaving in a manner that will fundamentally betray the, the trans-Tasman relationship. And we did have the, the peel-off from ANZUS in the 1980s under David Wong having nuclear ship business. Now, that didn't relate to China, but it was a, you might call a progressive peel-off or left-wing peel-off, however you want to describe it. 
I'm not concerned. I can understand New Zealand's did a very good dairy deal with the Chinese some years ago. I think when John Key was the Prime Minister, and I remember him talking to me about this and uh, how, you know, he said, just doesn't mean that you know, we're uh, in any way walking away from our, our, our friendships or our relationships, but it is important to us, and of course it is. I think it's just one of those things you, you, you allow to go through the keeper. All right, you mentioned that one of the other countries on your first trip abroad as Prime Minister was Indonesia, and there's always been ups and downs and disagreements and spats in the relationship with Indonesia. Talk us through how you thought about Australia's relationship with Indonesia, and I'm interested in whether you think that the relationship has entered a new era of stability under Jokowi. It does seem to be a more sort of even relationship now than it was. I think it is a more even relationship. When I became Prime Minister, I still had the view that keeping Jakarta happy was very important to our foreign relations. And it's true that in 1996, attitudes in Australia towards East Timor were bipartisan. They both believed, both sides of politics accepted, that no matter what had happened there and how Unfair it was, accommodating opinion in Jakarta was very important. And when I went to Jakarta a few months after I became Prime Minister, I, I met President Sahara and Ali Alatas, who was the Foreign Minister. We talked about East Timor, it was mm. always in the context. Of East Timor was part of the Indonesian Republic. Now, all of that changed. I think one of the things that helped in the early stages of our relationship with Jakarta was at the time of the Asian financial crisis. Peter Costello and I both kicked up quite a stink, put it bluntly, with the Americans and with the IMF about the impact of the financial crisis on Indonesia. We didn't think the international community had been accommodating enough. And there was that terrible photograph of Michael Canvasu, who was then the director, I think it was French, mm-hmm. They usually are, uh, director of the IMF, standing with his arms folded, looking over the shoulder of Sahada, where Sahada signed the agreement and sent a terrible message around Asia. And um, we just felt that there was a lack of understanding of how hard the financial crisis had hit Indonesia. And the Indonesians appreciated that. They felt that we had understood. And as a result of particularly Peter's efforts, we were able uh, to get some amelioration of the IMF suite of conditions. And then furthermore, we provided some direct financial help off our budget uh, to Indonesia in response to the crisis. And they appreciated that. Now, that was, I suppose, some money in the bank in the relationship when things got more difficult. Mm. Of course, the Asian financial crisis was really signaled the end of Sahara. And it was only a few months after that that uh, he resigned in favour of B.J. Habibi, who had spent 25 years working for the Messerschmitt Corporation, largely in Germany, but that's another subject. But it was a difficult relationship, always has been, uh, but it did get a lot better when SBY became the president. Mm. Uh, It went through a difficult phase over East Timor, but in the end that worked out okay. It worked out very well, in fact, but uh, we had very, very difficult days. And, of course, some of the Indonesian presidents, of which there were five when I was Prime Minister, 
were harder to deal with than others. But I ended up with SBY. We were very good friends. He had quite an affection for Australia. Two of his children had been educated at universities in Western Australia. That always helps. That education link's very important. You mentioned East Timor. We forget now there was quite a lot of risk inherent in the Australian-led Interfet intervention. We had a lot on the line. And I visited Dili a few years ago, John, and I was disappointed to find there's quite a lot of anti-Australian feeling about in East Timor. How do you feel about the fact that relations between Dili and Canberra over the past decade have not really been what they should have been? Look, I'm not, I'm not um, disagreeing with your assessment about what you found. I haven't been particularly conscious, though, before you mentioned it, of anti-Australian feeling. I think there's always a, you've got a small country in a, and, and to us, you know, we're a large metropolitan power to East Timor, and there's always a little bit of, even though you might owe a lot to that metropolitan power, there's always a bit of a resentment, um, and you get that with yeah, um, all around the world. I think the the ongoing argument over the fruits of the sea, the, the, the oil and all of that, I think that's probably aggravated the relationship and there would be many people in East Timor who would take the view that, well, no agreement except us getting everything. I mean, East Timor is satisfactory given the disproportions in the relative wealth of the two countries. The East Timorese struck a real chord with a broad cross-section of the Australian community, I found then. It was just amazing. You had the many people on the left wing of the Labor Party who were very pro-the Timorese, and then you had a lot of people who identified with the World War II generation who felt that we had an enormous debt because the Timorese had helped a lot of Australians in fighting the Japanese. And then you had the influence, the very strong influence of the Catholic Church in favour of the East Timorese because of the Portuguese provenance of, of East Timor. But it was a very risky operation, I agree with you. Could easily have gone wrong, but in the end it didn't. I think there were a couple of reasons for that. I think on the ground, the leadership that Peter Cosgrove gave when there was the first interaction between the Australian-led Interfet force and the Indonesian force, that was decisive. I also think the fact that we were able to enlist the support of a variety of countries in the region. Sure, the biggest contribution was made by Australia, and there was a big contribution made by New Zealand, which was made by the national centre-right government and then fully maintained by Helen Clark uh, when she became Prime Minister. But we also got the Koreans and we got uh, the Thais. Uh, so it was very much a mixed regional force and it couldn't be regarded as a, a, some kind of exercise in white uh, intervention. John, this week marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Now, you were in Washington, D.C. on the day of the attacks. Tell us about your strongest memories from that day. I think the strongest memory that day was quite literally Tony Alleri, my press secretary, having told me 20 minutes earlier that a plane had hit one of the towers of the World Trade Center, and both of us saying, gee, that's a terrible accident. 20 minutes later, he's banging on my door saying, you better turn on your TV. Another plane's hit the other tower. And we knew then that was something. I just remember then. Of course, then it just sort of rolled on from that. Uh, I had this news conference, uh, which had been called largely to talk to the visiting Australian media 
about the pending collapse of ANSET Airlines in Australia. And it was during that news conference that the plane slammed into the Pentagon. And after the news conference was over, we wound up the blinds and you could see the smoke rising. And my first thought was for my wife and elder son, Tim. Tim had come over from England where he was working to see us in Washington. And Jeanette and Tim had gone out sightseeing and I knew they wanted to go to the Pentagon just to see the, the building. And I heard fairly quickly that they, they were okay and they were taken to a safe house, which was a local fire station, and then they joined us later on in this bunker under the Australian Embassy where a whole lot of people were gathering, including a lot of Australian businessmen and uh, Michael Thorley was there and, uh, and Tom Schieffer and uh, I had a, a proper news conference there and I sent off a note to the President because I had met the President for the first time only the day before and it had been a wonderful couple of days. We had a great reception. Everybody from the administration turned up. This was on the Sunday afternoon at the embassy residence. Protocol forbade the president to come, but everybody else from the vice president down came and it was a wonderful occasion. And I spent two or three hours with him, the naval dockyard, and then discussion and lunch at the White House. And then in the afternoon, the Monday afternoon, I went to the Pentagon and met Norman Rumsfeld for the first time. I liked him, interesting fellow. Then in the evening, I had a meal with Rupert Murdoch, who was in town, and we talked about everything except the next day. But it was extraordinary. But uh, I, I think just I've never forgotten Tony was sort of breathless and we mm. knew then we had no way of assimilating what it would come on to mean. But, but you don't have two planes accidentally mm. flying into the twin towers of the World Trade Centre without there being something in it. You were in the United States on that occasion in part to celebrate the 50th anniversary of ANZUS. Yes, I, I was actually slated to give an address to a joint sitting of Congress the following day. Mm. And three days after 9-11, you announced that in light of the attack on the United States, Australia had invoked ANZUS the first time this had ever been done. Why did you decide to invoke ANZUS? Well, it came up in a conversation that I conducted with Alexander Downer on the way back to Australia. The Americans provided Air Force Two to fly me and my party from Andrews Air Force Base to Hawaii. And during that flight, I rang Alexander to talk about it. And during the discussion, it was Alexander who actually made the suggestion. He said, why don't we invoke ANZUS? This fits the terms. It's an attack upon the metropolitan territory of a signatory. And it would be a way of demonstrating how strongly we felt. It would be appreciated by the Americans. It would be understood by the rest of the world. And I had already foreshadowed in general terms at a news conference I'd given, what, an hour and a half earlier at the embassy residence that we would stand beside the Americans in any appropriate response. And that's how it happened. And I thought that was absolutely right. And we had a cabinet meeting on Friday morning and we put it to the cabinet meeting and they overwhelmingly agreed. And then I made the announcement. And it's the only time that ANZUS has been invoked. Later that year, your government decided to take Australia into the Afghanistan war beside the United States, a war that, that was supported by successive Australian governments. What did you think about President Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan last month? And what does that foreshadow in your mind about the future of the United States? Does that foreshadow a, a, a turn inwards, or do you think this might 
foreshadow a turn away from the Middle East, for example, and towards Asia? Look, I accepted that the American public had grown war-weary with Afghanistan and whatever one may have wished it might have been otherwise, that was the reality. And, and both Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden had formed and expressed that view. I think Trump was in error in, in effect saying we're getting out before actually negotiating the conditions under which that might occur. And I think the way in which it unfolded at the end was very untidy, disorderly, shambolic and didn't do a lot to enhance America's reputation. Although it has to be said that if they were able to shift 123,000 people uh, out of uh, Kabul in a short period of time, it's a pretty amazing effort. It's just a reminder of the extraordinary capacity of the United States to organise something once she's single-minded about it. Do I think it suggests any fundamental change in American commitment to her allies in this part of the world? At this stage, bearing in mind that it is a little early to tell, to borrow that famous phrase that probably Chow and Lai never used, I do think that it doesn't mean that America has made a strategic decision to withdraw from the world. I don't think that at all. I think the president has decided, had decided that he wanted to get out and nothing was going to stop it happening. And it, it meant that a few rough edges were created along the way, then so be it. That was the sense I had. Probably from a PR point of view, it's turned out to be far worse than he expected. And it certainly was not good. It was different from the retreat from, from Vietnam. That was, that was a different set of circumstances, although there were some similarities and imagery is always important. And they, the sight of those poor people trying to hang onto the plane as it takes off will be remembered for a long time as some of those photographs from Vietnam will be remembered forever. So do, do I think America is going to retreat? Do I think um, that? No. Do I think this has done some damage to American prestige? Yes, it has. I think the manner of it has. Uh, I don't know that in long term it will lessen American determination to act in uh, the right way in our part of the world, and I don't think it weakens our alliance in any way. In 2003, your government decided that Australia would also participate in the Iraq war, which was probably the most controversial foreign policy decision you made. In 2013, on the 10th anniversary of the Iraq war, you gave an address to the Lowy Institute in which you said that our actions in Iraq reinforced the reputation of Australia as a nation that stands by its friends, even in difficult circumstances. What do you make of the argument the other way, that the Iraq war made the US weaker poorer, less respected and less feared and also turned its head and distracted it from the challenge posed by China. When you look back on the decision by President Bush to go into Iraq, didn't it weaken the United States? I don't don't think, um, I'll I'll cover the generic question of weakening the United States. I I don't think it had any impact on America's attitude towards China. The argument there is in the early days of the Bush administration, they were taking quite a forward-leaning approach to China. And then once they got sucked into the forever wars in the Middle East and the Iraq war in particular, they were much less focused on the China challenge. It's an interesting theory. I've, I've, I've never quite seen it like that. I thought that the Bush administration's policy towards China was quite sensible 
Look, I think on in, in relation to Iraq, I know that it was controversial. I've never run away from that fact, and I certainly do remember the, the speech that, that I made uh, to the Lowy Institute on the 10th anniversary. I mean, Iraq was never, in my view, involved in the attack on uh, the 11th of September. I, I'd never argue that. In fact, I never heard from any senior member of the administration of George Bush that, that it thought it had been involved. It did believe that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and it did believe that given the track record of Saddam Hussein with Palestinian terrorists and gassing the Kurds and gassing the Iranians, he wouldn't hesitate to hand those weapons to terrorist groups if he had the opportunity. I think that was the principal motivation. One of the things you've got to remember about that period is that for a very long time, the American public was obsessed about when and where the next attack on their homeland would occur. And, and it was months before the possibility of that started to recede in the consciousness of Americans. Let me fast forward and just ask you about a few of today's issues, if I can. Let me, let me start with COVID. You mentioned earlier, right at the beginning of our discussion when you were talking about small business, and in terms of the burdens that, that small business and individuals have felt, how do you feel about the policy settings that Australian governments have adopted in relation to COVID? Do you think they've got the right balance between public health imperative on the one hand and human freedom on the other? Coming at it from different points of view and with different political perspectives and accepting it would have been some over-the-top statements by a few people like you know, Queensland hospitals are only for Queenslanders and that sort of stuff. But I'll put that aside as a bit of state of origin rhetoric. But uh, I think apart from that, I think by and large on both sides of politics, they've got it right. But nobody likes the restrictions. But equally, nobody should lose sight of the fact that we have been incredibly successful in containing the ultimate cost, and that is deaths. And people compare the vaccination rate here and the vaccination rate in Britain. But the, the death rate is 35 times in Britain what it is in Australia. Mm. And, and you look around the world and it's, been, it's quite remarkable. So I, I think the broad goal we now have, and that is when we get to 70 and then 80%, you can start lifting restrictions, remembering that you can't lift them all straight away. And remembering they might have to be brought back if things regress and there could be another variant. We've got Delta now, there could be another variant we don't know of. But I think we have been, as a nation, very successful. I think the health system, although there's a lot of fretting about it at the moment, but it's held pretty well. And I think the combination of public and private has worked well in Australia. We often don't give ourselves enough credit uh, for the fact that we have a nice mix in this country. We don't, we're, we're not obsessed as the Brits are with the national health system. And I'm, I can understand the, the reasons for that, but I, I, I don't think it's a superior model to ours. And, and of course, some of the you know, different approaches in the United States are just bewildering. You've got you know, extreme libertarian attitudes that are sort of almost well, they're not almost, they're actually hostile, the vaccines. And then you've got other parts of the country where uh, the lockdowns are a lot more severe. So I think we have more or less got it right. And I think the, the uneasy amalgam is correct. And I can understand that if you're living in and governing a part of a country that has no virus, you want to keep it that way. But equally, 
There's no way that um, once we get to a certain level that you can seal one part of the country off from another, and certainly not when you've got border clusters as you have between mm. Queensland and New South Wales. It's a bit different in Western Australia because there are no border clusters and the Western Australian economy is a bit more self-contained. But I think overall we ought to give ourselves a tick. Both sides of politics for having handled this pretty well. I'm a bit more optimistic. We've also sealed the country off from the rest of the world. Yeah, I think that was very successful at the beginning. Mm. And, and, and that, but the fact that that can't and shouldn't last mm. is one of the things that is going to um, mean that come the 70 and 80% targets being achieved, the pressure to completely open the place up will be, will be very considerable. But everybody knows, you know, people close to them who are, we haven't seen for close to a couple of years and mm. we're very familiar with that. And, and, and it's very tough, but having a very high death toll is very tough too. It's even tougher. That has to be the ultimate test, surely. The effectiveness of a health system is how long you can preserve life mm. for people. One of the effects of the closing of the international border has been the closing off of the immigration tap too. And I just mm. want to ask you a bit about immigration. Because something interesting happened on immigration during your time in office. You were very tough on irregular immigration, but you mm. were quite open-handed on legal migration. And indeed, the annual number of migrants Australia took under your watch increased from just under 68,000 in your first year of office to about 160,000 by the time you left office. Why did you adopt that policy? Why were you an enthusiast for a large number of migrants? Well, I think it's the reason I was in favour of it is that it works it's good for the country. I, I grew up seeing the positive contribution that largely at that time European migration made to Australia. It altered the country for the better without ordering it beyond recognition. It was a nice, it worked. And, you know, I still run into people who are now um, you know, visiting the country for years and they, they talk with great affection about how they, they came to Australia when that Mr Menzies, they say, was because he was there most of the time when they came, and they how much they loved living in Australia. And, of course, their children now passed into a later generations. So I think it worked. That's why I was in favour of it. All right, final question, John. Can you nominate for us a few world leaders who really impressed you from your time in office? Oh, look, it was impossible not to be impressed when you met Nelson Mandela. I didn't have a lot to do with him, but... I mean, his story is so uh, captivating and uh, his character and uh, his ability to forgive his captors in the national interest was quite inspiring. I had a very good relationship with Tony Blair. We were nominally on different sides of politics, but it didn't seem to amount to much when it came to international affairs. I had a very good relationship with two Canadian prime ministers, uh, Jean Chrétien, who was a French-Canadian from Quebec and a Canadian Liberal and Stephen Harper, the Conservative, and I'm very interested to see the Canadian election campaign at the moment, which is shaping into quite a fight. But I, I certainly found in Jung Zemin one of the most interesting people. It's surprising. He had a great passion for Western music and for Shakespeare, and, and he'd seen all the great Western, all the great Hollywood movies. And it was just quite fascinating talking to him about this. He had a great sense of humour. Uh, he had good conversational English, and I'm told that his Russian was even better because he was old enough to have been part of that generation of Chinese that mixed easily 
with the Russians before the split occurred in the early 60s. But they're, they're some of the people who uh, I remember with some regard. Well, we've started and now finished this conversation on Jiang Zemin, which I wouldn't have predicted beforehand, but it's very interesting. John, I've enjoyed speaking with you about your life, your career, and your view of the world. Thank you very much, John Howard, for joining me today on The Director's Chair. Thank you. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullilove. Thanks for listening.